So, so far, <clears throat> we have been talking about Romans chapter 1, and I've tried to do this review by asking just some few basic questions. The first question, the person that is writing this book that we are talking about, we all know the answer. The person is Paul. Second question, which we've covered as well, is who is writing to? Who are the recipients? And these are Christ followers in Rome. Uh, this is a unique church, just like virtually every other church that was written, that a letter was written to in the New Testament. It's a multicultural church, or you could say a multi-ethnic church. We've got Jewish people there. We've got people that were non-Jewish. The other thing we've considered is when. When was it written? And why is that even important? We know that it was written around AD 56 to 58. But why is that important? It's important because if we have a clue into what was going on at the time in the first century, historically, when that happened, it helps us understand better what is going on in the story itself. And two major striking things that happened prior to AD 56 is the fact that in AD 46, the um, emperor in Rome at the time, Emperor Claudius, sent all the Jews away. He expelled the Jews from the Roman, from, from Roman colony at the time. And then he died in AD 54. And the person that succeeded him, Emperor Nero, reversed that rule such that Jews started coming back. So it's like the embargo was lifted and Jews started coming back, including Jewish believers, of course. But that meant that the church in Rome, at the time when Paul was writing, was majorly dominated by Gentiles, by non-Jewish people that had structured the church in a way that it's almost becoming unbearable for a Jewish person to fit into the style, the way they do church and things like that. So that was part of the issues at the background of what Paul was going to be addressing later in the chapter. So why did he write the purpose of his writing? Um, second, really, the purpose was to secure financial support from the church in Rome. It was clear about that in chapter 16, which we'll see towards the very end of the letter. But I don't think that's the primary reason. The primary reason was he needed to address some specific issues and situations that were going on in that church, especially regarding the fact that there's a tension and the Gentiles, and he wants to draw them closer together and to strengthen them in their faith in spite of the different other challenges that they were facing in the context at time. And then how was he going to achieve How did he achieve his purpose? of writing the book of Romans. He used a very interesting methodology, which is to preach the gospel to them, to explain the gospel. Sorry. Sorry. Can we mute order, please? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to mute the other side. Not yourself, the other ones. <laughs> I know. I can't even find everybody as I... Oh, okay, yes, I can see everybody now. Um. Oh, home, I'm not. 
Okay, I think I got it. All right. So, um, <clears throat> sorry about that. Yeah. So, um, the method he used in achieving his purpose was to brilliantly explain the gospel from the beginning, you could say, or even almost from before the beginning began, so that there is nobody in any of the churches where this letter will be written that will not find himself in the story of romance, if you could put it that way. There is nobody that will read this letter, that is supposed to read this letter, that will not be able to resonate with something in the book of Romans. And by the time we continue to go further, different facilitators coming, you would see what I'm saying. Especially beginning from the next part, verse 18 to the end of chapter 1, or even to almost the end of chapter 3. He made sure he covered every kind of human being that you will ever meet on this planet before setting the stage for what the gospel really means and what it implies for us today. And lastly, through whom was this letter delivered? It was delivered through a woman by the name of Phoebe. And the implication of that as the culture was by the time is that it's very likely that the person that you send the letter to would also be the one to explain the letter to try to explain what was in the mind of the writer if the writer could not be there physically. That was the culture back then. And that would be fascinating if that were to be true in the sense that as brilliant as the book of Romans is, the very first person to give an exposition on it would have been a woman. And I think that's a very striking point for our women. Now the outline, we've covered verses 1 to 15. In verse 1 to 7, we saw Paul's introduction and his salutation. Then in verse 8 to 15, which we looked at last week, we saw how Paul began to endear himself, in a sense, to his audience. These are people that he has never seen. He has never visited the church in Rome. He has heard so much about them. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila worked in the church in Rome. So he had, Paul had access to people that had um, direct information about what was going on in the church in Rome, which is part of the reason why he could adequately address some specific issues, even without ever being to the church. Um, but in verse 16, it switches into the main crux of why he's writing, and that is what we want to look at today, verse 16 and verse 17. And if time permits, I will set the pace or the, 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 I will set the scene for verse 18 to verse 32. In verse 16 to 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God unto salvation, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the first to the last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In these two verses, he summarizes in a sense what he will spend the remaining 14 chapters there, the next 14 chapters there about unpacking. It's all about the gospel, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone, and you could say to anyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, 
a righteousness that is by faith from the first to the last. Just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now on our um, outline, so I'll just switch to the outline and read from the outline, starting from the verse 16 part of it. Okay, so as we've said, verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews, then to the Gentile. Remember, as I said earlier on, you can cut me short at any point in time. Just unmute yourself and ask the question you want to ask or add the comments you want to ask. Uh, add. Because in the view that I have now, I'm not seeing everybody, so I might not even be able to see you if you wave or do any other thing to try to get my attention. Now, what does it mean to say the power, the gospel is the power of God? that brings salvation. We've heard it again and again. Pastor, I've shared about this repeatedly, that the gospel is powerful in and of itself. It's our own responsibility is to share it. There is power in the gospel to do the work. And the way the power operates or the, 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 the results that the power generates will be different in different circumstances and scenarios. In fact, very many times you preach the gospel and it might look like nothing has happened, but that is based on your own limited perception. The gospel is always powerful. The same power it contained in the first century is the same power it contains now, power that will contain even after this time. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power unto salvation. Now, what does that mean? That means, of course, again, again and again, that the, the gospel itself is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 4. It's all about Christ. His coming, his death, his resurrection, and what all of that symbolizes, what he has achieved and accomplished for us. It's a message of how we become eternal members of God's family. By that, I mean those who will live and reign eternally with God. And it is good news. It's good news because it doesn't depend upon us. It tells us how we may be freed from sin, which rages in our bodies and in our world. It tells us how we can face death in hope that we will live again and how we can have peace with God. The difference between... The different people in the world today and how they will respond, for instance, to the plague of coronavirus is partly is due to how much of the good news we understand. Because if we have this robust understanding of the good news, then we know that we have no reason to fear. Because our faith in eternity is settled. When I say faith, F-A-T-E, I'm not talking about our faith, our, our destiny. We know where this journey ends. We know where this story ends. We know where this drama, if you call it that, we know where it ends. So there is really nothing to fear. The, 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 the reason why everybody is as panicky as they are, especially in the world today, the, the reason is simple. Nobody wants to die. It's as simple as that. But if you have 
received and understood the gospel, you know that death in itself is not a threat. Death in itself has no power over a believer. And so there is something that we carry. There is something that we enjoy. There is something that gives us joy in the air and now, irrespective of the seasons of life that we might be in. And that's the gospel. That's what the gospel does or delivers to us. But it's not only enough to know what the gospel is. We also need to know what the gospel is not. Because that word today is so, is so commonly used that it has been abused. It's like love. Love now means all sorts of things. Likewise, gospel now means all sorts of things. In fact, you could use gospel as a propaganda for the government. The gospel of Brexit, for instance. Or the gospel of any other political agenda that you might want to come, come up with. But the gospel, some people have made it to look like the gospel is earning your salvation, earning your entrance into heaven. They've made it look like, oh, just come. If you can tick all these boxes, if you can abstain from this and that, if you can do this and this, then you will, you have earned your ticket into heaven. And, and, and that's good news. The, the reality is that's not good news because what's good about that? We all know, or we will get to know from what Paul will begin to tell us in unveiling this, that there is nobody that can meet up to the standard that God is expecting. So there is no amount of earning our entrance into heaven that can earn us a pass mark. Another twist that is common in the, in the Christian circles about the gospel is some people have made it look like it's your ticket to prosperity, to earthly riches, to freedom from earthly worries, to physical healing and things like that. Of course, by the time you embrace the gospel, there is a knowledge that you have that delivers these things into our hearts in a different dimension than those that lay unnecessary emphasis to it. Because sooner or later, such people run into problems. They say, okay, when I become a Christian, we said, this problem will stop, that one will stop, I will have an answer to this one, I will have an answer to that. They come to the Christian faith, they give their life to Christ, to use the evangelical term, and those things don't happen the way they have been told. It's because what they have gotten is not the gospel. Just someone's adulterated understanding of what the gospel is. And that leads people into all sorts of manipulations and crazy things. That's why people are being brainwashed all around the world in the name of Christianity. Because they, someone has peddled something to them in the name of the gospel that is far from being the gospel. So the gospel is not ending our entrance into heaven. The gospel is not a message of earthly riches, freedom from worries, physical healing, and, and exclusively all that. When the message is just focused on that alone and not on the crux, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, Christ, who came, died, resurrected, paid the price, defeated death, and delivered all of that inheritance to us. That's the gospel. And the same Christ that did all of that already said in John 16, 33, for instance, that in this world, you will have many tribulations. He says, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. He didn't even say, I have overcome the tribulations, mind you. In this world, you will have many tribulations. But be of good cheer, I have overcome that world. I have overcome the environment in which those tribulations are coming from. 
you get to enjoy that. You get to enjoy a life that is above whatever it is that this world can throw along your path as a Christian, as a challenge, as a tribulation, as a persecution, whatever language you want to use for it. When you lay hold on the gospel, you know that you are beyond them. You are above them. And that is the juice that Paul wants to help us to squeeze out the further we go into this book. Then he goes on to add that little part that Mayor was asking questions about when we started uh, reading about this. He says, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And of course, just taking that literally, remember I said he's writing this letter to a church where there are Jews, there are Gentiles. And not just that there are Jews and Gentiles, it's a church where the Gentiles are almost beginning to think that salvation is for them. It's not for the Jews. Because if it was for the Jews, they wouldn't have been expelled in the first instance from amidst the community of faith or where the city where their community of faith is situated. So there are such faulty reasonings going on in that church or in those groups of churches in Rome to which Paul was writing. So Paul needed, amongst other things, to also help them understand the place or the role of the Jewish race in this whole salvation context. So he needed to add that statement. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 2, the statement comes again in another context, and we're going to see how that keeps unfolding through the rest of the book. So here, when he says first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, first there is meant in all respects because the Lord determines that Jewish people will be at the center of his plan to save the human race. And if we look at it from the scriptures, we see that the Jews were the first to receive God's promises of salvation in the covenant. The first person that God called and gave the covenant to that we are enjoying today is Abraham. And Abraham, of course, is going to be the father of the Jewish race. God called him out of his own um, clan and his own people and established a covenant with him that made him the father of a new nation. And that covenant is what we are all enjoying till today. The Jews were the first to hear of this covenant through their prophets. Prophet Isaiah was writing or prophesying hundreds of years before Christ when he said, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God, the Prince of Peace. These are images and prophecies that were delivered to the Jewish people about the Messiah that will come sometime in the future that was fulfilled in the person of Christ. The Gentiles had no clue or no understanding of all these things. The Jew, Jewish people or Jewish race had the honor of birthing the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, through the lineage of David, both Mary and her supposed um, betrothed husband, Joseph, were both Jewish people. Then we move on down the line, we see that it was also the Jews that were the first to witness the preaching and the miracles of the Messiah in Galilee. In fact, Jesus was intentional about ministering just within the circumference of the Jewish people. Because even he himself said it, that I was, I'm sent to the, to the lost sheep of the household of Israel. It took a woman's faith, a Canaanite's faith, to to draw from, from what he carries. Because when she came and said, come and heal my daughter, Jesus said, 
I am sent, what is meant for, what is bread is meant for the sons. In other words, you are not part of the sons. You are not part of the children. You don't get to enjoy what I carry because the time hasn't come for it to go beyond the Jewish race. But the woman, because of her faith and persistence, went on to say no. Yes, I know this thing might be for the sons, but at least when the bread, the crumbs of the bread fall down, the dogs will get to eat of it. You might say that I fit into that category of dogs now, but I believe I can still partake of this. And that was how she got what she wanted. But that was all a matter of time. When the appropriate time came, in the fullness of time, we saw that God appointed someone from amongst the Jewish people by the name of Paul that would spearhead taking the message to the Gentile communities. Again, we saw that the Jews were the first to reject him. He went and preached in many places, had many successes, came to his own hometown, they rejected him, and he wept over them. He said a prophet is not honorable amongst his own people, and even amongst people of his own home. Again, the Jewish apostles were the first to deliver the gospel to their countrymen. Remember the message that Peter preached in Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 2 on, on, on Pentecost today, and 3,000 came to Christ. That was a Jewish person again preaching this message of a Jewish Messiah. But eventually, Paul came on the scene and many others. In fact, at, at some point, God sent Peter himself to also reach out to some Gentile family, the family of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And then Paul was actually appointed for this purpose of going to reach out to the non-Jewish people. And he had lots of success around that. So Paul is, is, is trying to make a hint here that we are going to see how that unfolds more when we go further into the rest of the book. That this salvation, there is a, there is a, is a storyline. And that story began in a particular, or missed a particular group of people, but it did not end there because it wasn't meant to end there. Jesus is the seed of Abraham that is supposed to now make it possible for all nations to enjoy what used to be the exclusive preserve or the inheritance of the Jewish people. And as we noted earlier, um, making that point today, like if you are trying to preach to someone, you it's, it's irrelevant today to be telling them salvation is first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. It's, it's absolutely irrelevant. But we needed that bit of information to understand, again, the context to which Paul was writing and help us to appreciate some of the other things that he will be saying as we go on into the rest of the book. It's going to come down very hard on the Jewish people in chapter 3 and then later in chapter 9, 10, 11, thereabouts. So over the next 15 chapters or so, Paul will explain this good news, this gospel in all its fullness. But in verse 17, he summarizes the gospel very powerfully. He says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it is a righteousness that is by faith from the first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous we live by faith. There are three parts to this statement, to that verse that I want us to quickly zoom into. And each of these parts is going to talk about them in more details in the other parts of the book. But the first thing to note there is, it says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The, the, the gospel is a message that 
centers around righteousness. And when we, when we talk of righteousness, it's not just righteousness in terms of I, I try to do good. I, I think I'm better than Brother David. I think I'm better than Sister Ife. I think I'm, of course, we just are very righteous people that I respect. <laughs> but the point is, there is a righteous standard of God that no one can measure up to. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, I think verse 20, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And of course, he was delivering this in the Sermon on the Mount to a Jewish audience. Pharisees were listening to him. And to be a Pharisee is like to be the most righteous of the righteous as far as the commandment is concerned. You have dotted the I's, you have crossed your T's. You don't do this, you don't do that. But Jesus will spend the rest of that chapter trying to make them see that the commandments of God that the Jewish people thought, as long as you can keep it, you are fine with God, is more than how it's, it's deeper. It's supposed to be a mirror that will make them see that they cannot even, by any means, move closer to accomplishing or achieving it. And so he began to poke holes into those commandments. You have heard that Moses say you shall not commit adultery. And they are like, yes, we don't commit adultery. At least nobody catches you sleeping with someone else's wife. But Jesus went on to say, if you were just lost in your heart. And of course, nobody sees that. Nobody knows when someone else is lost in about or after anybody. But Jesus is saying, if you will tolerate that one in your heart, you are righteous. You have heard that he said, you shall not murder. But if you will say to your brother, thou raka, which is like an insult. It's like saying, stupid or foolish. He says you are also in, in danger of judgment. So it goes on and on and on to make them see that it's not just about keeping the Ten Commandments or the 612 or 13 injunctions in the Old Testament. There is a righteousness that is of God. The demands of the law is for us to be as holy as God, as righteous as God, as perfect as God, and there is no one in his rightest or most sanctified righteousness on our own and of ourselves that can meet up to that standard. The second thing that we saw in that verse 17 again is that it's not just about righteousness. The gospel is not just about any righteousness. It's about the righteousness that is of God. And I've explained that. Our pursuit of righteousness must begin with that understanding, understanding God and his righteousness. Because part of the questions that the gospel asks is, how do I become as righteous as God? Which again is a puzzling question, but Paul will help us to see how simply that is answered in the course of this book. And the third part is that this righteousness that we're talking about is a revelation. It says for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, is a revelation. For something to be a revelation means it's not everybody that sees it. In fact, it takes a revealer to reveal it. And once it is revealed, you need faith to accept what has been revealed. You need faith to believe what has been revealed. So the, the, the righteousness of God that we are talking about reveals itself to us. How? Through the message of the gospel. And that is what Paul is now going to start to do from verse 18. So Paul is saying that our faith in the message of the gospel yes. manifests God's righteousness in us. 
to Hello, Pastor. by faith. Therefore, is to receive eternal life as a result of that faith and to go through the rest of our life depending on that faith alone for salvation. That's why he says it's a message of righteousness revealed, righteousness of God revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the beginning to the end, from first to last. So says, from faith to faith. In other words, you don't just get saved by faith. Continue to be saved by faith. Hello, Pastor. Yes, sir. Okay. Right. Uh, sorry just to come in. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on, sir. Yeah. Now, um, you know, because the way we normally do in Bible studies. Yes. Right, so that people can also contribute. Contribute. To yes, sir. Yeah. Now, if, you, if we all look at the, if we look at the bottom of our screen, uh, you will see um, something called reaction. Yeah, that re reaction with a smiley face. So if you click on that, you can raise your hand up That's, there. Yeah. So if you raise your hand up there, yeah, then pastor will see it. Once you see it, then it will give you audience to talk. Okay, because this screen can only show maybe five at a time. So it will be good for us to also contribute and do all stuff like that. So you can do that and uh, you can also change your, your background if you want. And the question I want to also, I want to quickly ask us is this. Yes, sir. Now, the, uh, that key verse there, which is um, uh, Romans 1.16, mm. that I'm not, what does he actually mean? Therefore, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power. Now, like Pastor said, the power is in that gospel. The power to heal, the power to raise up, the power to do miracles, the power to save. Now, the question I want to, what I want to bring out to limelight just before we go is that, what do we actually take from there? What do we take from there? Now, the two things that really point that, that just propped out to me because that's one of the key verse in the Bible and also in the book of Romans is how do we translate that? How do we translate that in the current time that we have? Number one, that we're not ashamed of the gospel, meaning that we are not ashamed to tell people about the gospel of Christ, mm. to tell people about that gospel. And there's no better time than the time that we are now to tell people, to show the world that Jesus is the solution to the world, to the problem that we have in this world. So that is one way that we can show that Romans 1.16, that we're not ashamed of the gospel. The second way that I think is also to now leave that thing so that people can see it in us. So the first way is to go out and show it and say it to people. Then the second way is also people can see. The Bible says, holiness without which no man can see God. It means sometimes the way other people read God, the way they see God, is through us. So two ways. And uh, you, you can actually uh, confirm that in uh, Psalm verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. When you read, when you read, when you read that uh, verse, pass. Can you quickly help us put uh, Psalm one, one? So the two things I'll say, as Pastor put that there, is number one, is number one to go to proclaim 
to proclaim the gospel with confidence and boldness. Okay. So now, how do we, so number one is to go out and proclaim that gospel and tell the people about the good news. So some people, if you, if you, if you hear what is going on around now, some people are saying, yes, um, when uh, all these things are happening, that is the end of the world. But that is not what the Bible says. It is not the end of the world. The Bible says that when you hear about all these diseases, war, and rumors of war, that all these things will come to pass. He said, but the, 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 the world has not ended. He said, until this gospel is preached around the whole world, then the end shall come. So what the, the, the end is waiting for is that Romans 1.16, us going out and doing our own bit and preaching out to people with the gospel. Then secondly, leaving the gospel, leaving it, leaving it, let the gospel find expression in us. Now let's quickly read that uh, Psalm 1. Uh, one. He said, great blessing belongs to those who don't listen to evil advice, who don't live like sinners, but who don't join those who make fun of God. Now, do you have King James Version's uh, translation there? Yeah, so we are used to that word. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinners, nor seated in the seat of the scornful. So those that to me is the second way in which we can express Romans 1.16. Number one, by showing Second uh, Corinthians, Second Corinthians uh, 1.15, and number two, by letting that gospel find expression in us and people can actually see Christ in us. And that is just uh, my, my contribution to, to, to that. Thank you. Any other contributions before we wrap up? And Pastor would lead us in prayers. Okay, I'll just quickly tie up the end and then we can take some contributions. Okay. Um, all right. So we, we were on... Um, Okay, we are on the on the last part. Before Paul elaborates on the means to righteousness, this righteousness that he has explained in verse 17 as what the gospel is about, before he begins to explain that, he first addresses the common misconceptions that men hold for how to be righteous. And this is what I mean by saying that everybody, all of humanity, you find them in the next four groups of people that Paul addresses from verse 18 to the end of, or the, towards the middle of verse, uh, chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 20. He will go on to, to explain all of these faulty assumptions. One of them is paganism. Paganism is the worship um, of things that can be seen instead of the invisible God who made it all. And of course, that's not just bowing down to a carved image. 
For some people, they think they worship is money. For some people, the things they worship is, I mean, all sorts of things, celebrities, um, soccer, and all of that. And one of the things coronavirus has shown us, that whatever gods, apart from the true living God that we can say we want to put our, our trust in, is also very fallible. There are other groups of people that fall under what we call moralism. Of course, you won't find all these big words in those chapters, but it explains them. Moralism is when you make yourself the judge over someone else. You are, you are a judge over yourself and over someone else. You are, those are the kind of people that say, at least I'm, I'm, I'm still better. I don't, I don't commit adultery. I don't fornicate. Um, as long as I'm like that, I'm better than so-and-so person. I'm better than so-and-so person. Such a person is a moralist. No matter how morally upstanding you are, if you have not received the gospel, as you are going to see as we continue this very brilliant book, you will discover that such a person is still far from enjoying the dividends of the kingdom of God. Then mm-hmm. Nomianism is the third group of people he, ad- uh, he addresses. Nomianism is the pursuit of righteousness by observing laws. And this looks a bit like Judaism as well. Those people that believe that, yes, God said, don't do this, I don't do it. Don't do that, I don't do it. As long as I score 10, 10 in the Ten Commandments, I am fine. But again, Paul, we point out, as we're going to see in chapter 3, that <laughs> there is no one that is righteous. Not even one. Not even the nomian. Not even the person that believes that he's observing all the laws or the rules perfectly. And then the fourth group is the Judaism. These are people that believe that by virtue of the fact that they are born into the Jewish race, they are fine with God. They are automatically saved because they are Jews. Paul will address all of these groups and then point us to one other group that the rest of the book we then talk about, the group of those of us who have enjoyed, who have come to the end of ourselves, embraced the gospel, accepted what Christ has done and accomplished on the cross and received it for ourselves by faith. Only after refuting these false views does Paul return to describing the correct way to righteousness? And we're going to pick up on this next week. So in conclusion, we've introduced the context of Paul's letter to the Romans. We have seen his introduction to his arguments. And next week, by God's grace, we'll consider at least that first group out of those four groups, those four categories that he grouped in, uh, humanity into, the pagans. And we're going to see that it's not so strange a word as it sounds. And there are very many Christian pagans today and how to avoid that and enjoy the gospel of grace and the righteousness of God. The Lord will bless our hearts in Jesus' name. I'll stop there. Um, in one minute, if there's any question, we can ask or contribution or comments. Just unmute yourself and ask. Otherwise, I'll hand over to Pastor for the prayer session.